1: If we've not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and this morning, it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, here's what I know to be true. What you believe about death determines how you live. What you believe about death determines how you live. And and that's for everyone everywhere. That is for religious, non-religious. That is is for secular humanists. That is for Hindus. That is for Mormons. Uh, That is for people who believe in Islam. Everyone everywhere, how they live is determined on what they think is going to happen when they die. So uh, think of secular humanism. What is secular humanism? Well, secular humanism teaches uh, that we are here, we exist because of millions of years of evolution through an unguided process. The universe now exists and life was somehow formed on the planet and that single cell organism grew somehow into a multi-cell organism, so on and so forth, on down the line until here we are today and, That's it. So what do they believe about death? Well, they believe that when you die, that's it. A secular humanist believes that once you go into the ground, it's over. You just become worm food. And so in their mind, then, how they live is do whatever makes you happy. There's no standing before God at the end when you die, and so you should just live your life however you want to and whatever makes you happy without being bound up by any religious moral rules or laws. That's what a secular humanist believes, because what they believe about death determines how they live. In the same way, what about uh, somebody who is a Hindu that believes in reincarnation, this idea that once you die, you come back in a different form and you have this opportunity to right the wrongs of your past, however you would measure that, and, and through some process of reincarnation and reincarnation again and again and again, you eventually are done with those cycles and you enter into nirvana. So again, the, what a Hindu believes about death determines how they live. Or what, what about somebody who's just agnostic? They they just they don't know uh, what happens when you die. Well. What they believe about death uh, determines how they live because they're constantly in fear of death, trying to avoid it at all costs. And so even somebody who doesn't know what happens when they die, their life is still determined uh, by what they believe about death. And so what we believe about death determines how we live, and so uh, for, for some of us in the room this morning, we might even understand uh, the the agnostic person uh, as it relates to death, uh, because we're not exactly sure beyond a shadow of a doubt what happens when we die, because none of you have died because you're here this morning, <laughs> but church family, I have some really good news for us this morning, there is someone who has died. <laughs> There is a man, Jesus Christ, and, and he died. Uh, they nailed him to a Roman crossbar. He was declared dead by a professional executioner. They then buried him and put him in a grave. He died, and, 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 but he didn't stay dead. He came back to life, and on his authority, he has explained to us exactly what happens to us when we die, and what he says is there is going to be a resurrection. What Jesus says is that death is not the end, resurrection awaits us all. And so if you're taking notes this morning, write that down for me church family. Death is not the end, resurrection Awaits us all. Jesus himself has earned the right through his death and through his resurrection to explain to us what happens when we die. And so, based off of that, we should then determine how we live today. Death is not the end, resurrection awaits. And so, when a believer dies, their soul goes to be with God in paradise. Do you remember the thief on the cross who Jesus turned to him and said, Today, 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 you will be with me in paradise? And so, when we die, our soul goes to be with with God in heaven, and on a great appointed day, which only God knows, a trumpet will sound, and the Lord will descend, and the graves of the dead will be opened up. But listen to me, church family, It's not going to be like the walking dead, okay? It's not going to be decaying flesh and old dusty bones. We will receive from God a new resurrection body, a perfected resurrection body which will not age, which will not become sick ever again. Cancer will be no more. They won't even need to make coffins anymore because death will be no more. The resurrection is awaiting Us all. This is what happens when we die. There will be no disabilities. There will be no aging or getting sick. Cancer will no longer exist. There will be no diseases. Whatsoever in the age to come, death is not the end, resurrection awaits. This is why. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3:10. Are y'all with me this morning? The Apostle Paul, okay, nobody's with me. That's fine. I'll preach by myself. This is why the Apostle Paul has this to say. He he says, I count everything as loss. I, I give everything away. Why? Watch this, Philippians 3, 10 through 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Watch this. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul there is saying, I'm basing my whole life off of the fact that when I die, there's gonna be a resurrection. As a matter of fact, in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we of all people are the most to be pitied. If, if this thing that we're doing here today, uh, we've dressed up, we've put, you know, I, I got on a blazer today, church family, We've come here to this building to sit in this place to worship God. If when we die that, like, if this is all there is, what are we doing here? What a waste of time this is. But we know because Jesus has come back from the grave that this isn't all there is. That when they close the casket, that's not the end of the story. And so we have reason to live and to have hope in the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm ready to preach today. Now, we find ourselves in Luke uh, chapter 20. We've been traveling through this book line by line, verse by verse. In just a few days, Jesus will be arrested. He will be executed and put into it. it it's only a few days away in, in the place where we find ourselves in this story. J- Jesus has been in the temple. Um, he's been teaching. He's been preaching in the temple. And and person after person, group after group have come to Jesus they're asking him questions. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to discredit him because he just keeps gaining fame and popularity with the people. And so all of the religious uh, fancy folks are wanting to figure out a way to get Jesus out of the way. And so they're asking him these questions to try to trip him up. Remember, we, we saw, they asked him a question about, uh, you know, what, what do we, do we pay taxes or not to the evil government? And he said, render to Caesar what is to Caesar's and to God." So he's, He's navigating through these really complex theological situations with just ease, and and no one, no one can come up with something that stumps Jesus, and we find that exact same thing today. Uh, We see this group of guys known as the Sadducees. Here they come to try to stump Jesus. They try to put Jesus in the hot seat, but what we saw last week, when you attempt to put Jesus in the hot seat, you end up there yourself. And so we're going to see that exact same thing today. Here's how we'll navigate through our text. First, we're going to see disbelief in the resurrection. These guys are known, these these guys, the Sadducees are known for their disbelief in the resurrection. We're going to we're going to learn some more things about the Sadducees. Second, mocking the resurrection. So first, disbelief in the resurrection. Then the the whole way that they're framing this question to Jesus is they're mocking the resurrection. They think that this belief is so silly. But <laughs> Jesus responds this way. He responds, thirdly, we're gonna see facts about the... Re-. Jesus has facts for us today, church family. He, they're mocking the resurrection. They don't believe the resurrection. And, and Jesus says, no, no, l- let me let y'all in on some facts about the resurrection. Thirdly and lastly, he, or fourthly, I'm sorry, fourthly, he gives us then biblical evidence For the resurrection. He takes them back to the Old Testament and says, Here it is, boys. This is the resurrection. So we're going to see disbelief in the resurrection, mocking the resurrection, facts about the resurrection, and fourthly, biblical evidence for the resurrection. Y'all want to get into the text today? First, disbelief in the resurrection. Verse 27 in chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. These Sadducees are kind of like um, Jewish royalty. They're they're like a duke or an earl or a baron or they're connected. These Sadducees, this group, they're connected with the priests and the temple. Which, if you remember from <laughs> what what we just saw at the end of chapter 19, Jesus has just Cleansed the temple. He's just kicked out all these people who uh, are making all of this uh, ill-gotten gain out of the temple. And these guys are connected to the priests in the temple, so that's probably why they're there, trying to trip him up to discredit him. He is, you know, upended their whole system. But anyway, the, these guys are—they're uh, very wealthy. They are at the top of society, and so it would be a mistake to lump the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the same group. These are these are two separate groups. These are two separate. Uh, a kind of theological beliefs. They're, they differ in religious beliefs, and they also uh, differ politically. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees, which we, we know a lot about, we, we have studied and talked about them a lot, the Pharisees believe in the sovereignty of God, where the Sadducees believe in free will. The Pharisees believe in angels and demons. The Sadducees do not. They, they don't believe in angels and and demons, The Pharisees believe in the Torah, the writings, uh, ba- basically all of the Old Testament, including uh, oral tradition passed down from the rabbis where the Sadducees only accept the Torah. That is uh, the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. Uh, so if, if you want to know just a fun little way to remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is that the Sadducees do not believe in life after death. That's why they're so sad, you see. There you go. Okay. You'll never forget that, I promise. Now, uh, here's what we know. Look here as he opens up this section in, in verse 27, he is giving us this distinctive about them. So I said that they only believe in the first five books of the Bible, they don't believe in angels and demons. But what Luke is doing in 27 is he's singling out this one theological concept, the fact that they don't believe in the resurrection. We know that Jesus himself has already stated his beliefs about the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if we had time, we would go back to chapter 9 in verse 22, where Jesus says that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite distinction for himself, the Son of Man must die, and three days later, be raised from the dead. He said that in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Then he repeated that in Luke 18, 33. He says it again, the Son of Man must die and on the third day be brought back to life. So we know uh, Jesus' theological position on the resurrection. They know Jesus' theological position on the resurrection, which is why they're coming to him to try to trip him up about this thing, to discredit him and get him out of their temple so they can get the money changers back in there and money can start flowing back in. That's the that's the setup. Let's look at verse 28 together. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what they're referring to uh, is known as Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. The word uh, Leverite means uh, brother-in-law. So brother-in-law marriage is, is what they're referring to. It, it refers back to this Old Testament practice. If Again, if we had time, we would go look at it in Genesis 38 or Deuteronomy 25. But here's the big idea. The big idea is this. Uh, in, in those ancient times, uh, widows were very, very vulnerable. Uh, widows were mistreated, Um, there was not a a particular uh, complex government system that would care for these widows if their husband died, and so their solution then uh, was for the brother-in-law to give the widow a son, and the son then could carry on the family name, the son could inherit the property, Uh, the the son could give protection for that widow, Uh, and, and so that was the practice. But here's what you need to know. Uh, during this time, in Jesus' day, uh, this practice was not very common at all. So the whole point, then, <laughs> is this is an academic exercise. This is a, just a theological question that they're trying to ask that doesn't have any real uh, basis in, in reality because this practice was not common practice by the time of Christ. Okay, so here they go. They're going to mock the resurrection. They're going to mock the resurrection in verses 29-29 and 33. Here we go. Now, there were seven brothers. Again, totally hypothetical. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise, all seven... Can, can you imagine like being brother five, six, or seven? Like, I ain't marrying that girl. Everybody that marries her dies. This, this gal is bad luck. Okay, so anyway... Uh, All seven marry her and they die, verse 32, 33. Afterward, the woman also died. Here's their question. Here they go. In your mind, just hear the smug pride that's just exuding from them as they think they have Jesus cornered. Whose wife? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. (laughs) They're just, <laughs> you, just <laughs> you can't answer that. Jesus is is there is they think that they have Jesus. I mean they have a big smile on their proud little faces. They think that they have Jesus in a bind. To them, the idea that a woman in heaven would have seven husbands is so ridiculous that it actually cancels out the theological concept of a resurrection. They they think it's absolutely insane, because there is no answer to their hypothetical question, therefore the resurrection cannot be a reality. Let me, let me just give you an example of how this might play out today. If you hold the theological belief uh, that God is all-powerful, anybody hold that theological belief? I do. Someone trying to discredit you might ask a silly question. They might say something like, okay, well, listen, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that even he can't lift it. Huh? Answer that one for you. So so you see the question then is designed to to defeat the theology. Again, that that question not understanding that that is a logical fallacy, but whatever, that's a totally different sermon. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. What will Jesus do in the face of that third? Jesus is about to drop some facts about the resurrection. So we've seen them mock the resurrection Giving this story about this woman, she can't possibly have seven husbands in heaven. This is so ridiculous. How could you hold to such a ridiculous belief as the resurrection? And let's look at Jesus' response. Now, the facts that Jesus is about to give us about the resurrection dismantles the premise of their argument. The premise of their argument is that there's no way a lady could be married to seven men in heaven. That's that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, Jesus goes to the premise, the beginning of their argument, and dismantles it and shows them that resurrection is a theological and spiritual reality. Let's look at it in thirty four and thirty five. And Jesus said to them, "The sons of this age marry and into given in marriage." But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage first. Jesus is differentiating between this age. What does he mean, this age? Well, he means the current age that we find ourselves in, Uh, meaning we are in between uh, the the. the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This is the age that we find ourselves in. And he's saying that in this age, men and women are married. They get married and they're given in marriage. But in the age to come that is in the resurrection, men and women will not be given in marriage. So the first fact that we discover about the resurrection is that even if you are married in this life, you will not be married in the resurrection. Jesus is letting us peek behind the mystery uh, into heaven for people who are married now. So you will be husband and wife in this life for a short time, but you will be brother and sister in the family of God forever. That's what Jesus is communicating to us about the life to come. The second fact that he gives us is there in verse 36. It says this, for they cannot die anymore. Okay, stay with me. Y'all with me this morning? Follow Jesus's logic here. So the first thing that he tells us is that in the resurrection, men and women will not be married. Then 36, he says, for they cannot die. So, So 36 then is linked to verses 34 and 35. How is it linked? Well, because we will live forever, meaning this. When a man and woman are married, they consummate the marriage, okay? One of the reasons that men and women consummate a marriage is for reproduction. Now, reproduction or procreation is not the only reason for husbands and wives to be together, amen? Okay? But it is one of the main functions. It is one of the main functions. But in the resurrection, no one will need to be perpetuating the human race because we live forever. Do you see Jesus' logic here? So if we live forever, we don't need to keep on having babies, but meaning once Jesus returns, all the humans that need to be made will be made. That's, that's what Jesus is, is saying here. Okay, verse 36. For they cannot die anymore. You all still with me? Yeah. For they cannot die anymore because they are, watch this, equal to angels. What does that mean? <laughs> Equal to angels and our sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The first fact that he says is that men and women will not be married in the resurrection. The second fact that he gives us is that we will live forever in heaven. And then this third fact is that our lives will be consumed with serving God. And don't be clarifying him. We don't be because he says we will be like the angels. We don't become angels. We don't become angels. Those are different beings. And so, if you've ever been to a funeral and somebody has said, "We've lost a brother, but heaven has gained an angel," I understand the sentiment, but that's not true. <laughs> we we don't become angels. Those are different beings altogether. Um, but we become like our lives in the sense that they are eternal and we will be eternal. And we're like them in the sense that our lives and everything that we are and all that we become is going to be given in service to God and glorifying God, just like the angels. That's what he means. That's, that's what he means there. Now, just as a side note, for those of you who are not married, my, my single people in the room today, you need not worry that you have missed out on something. It's not as if being married uh, welcomes you into this greater, deeper spiritual life that you will never be able to peer into. As a matter of fact, we're actually not married for that long at all, comparatively speaking. Okay. Practically what Jesus is communicating to these Sadducees is that the scope of our human experience is insufficient to describe or understand the new heavens and what is to come. So, so here's what I mean, church family. I, I mean this, human relationships here and now are only a shadow of what they will be in the resurrection. The human relationships that we will experience in the resurrection are like these ones here but they're also gonna be totally different in the sense that there won't be any sin. Sin will no longer distort the human relationships which we have, meaning when you communicate with your brother or sister in Christ in the resurrection, you won't be making up made-up stories about them like you do now. You, You won't have a sense of inferiority Um, You you won't believe that they wish you harm. You you won't be bringing all the baggage from your past. We won't have any of that In the new heaven, our human relationships will be totally and radically different. Our experience of joy and pleasure here and now is only a shadow of what it will be in the resurrection. Even the very planet and the animals are only shadows of what we will experience and what the planet will be like and what animals will be like and what existence will be like. And our experience with God himself here and now is only a shadow of what it will be in the resurrection. And so there, there's a lot of mystery to, to what is to come, amen? There's a lot of mystery about what is to come. But there are some things that we can know. We can know this, we will have a body like his. Romans Romans chapter eight and six explain to us that we will receive a resurrection body like Christ's resurrection body. We, we know that that, will, but even that is mysterious, isn't it? because uh, Christ was recognizable as himself, but also some of them didn't recognize him. Christ had a physical resurrection body. We know that because they touched him and he ate fish, uh, but he also walked through walls. So we will have a body like his, but there's also some mystery to that. We know that we will be with him forever because uh, Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you. And so there's gonna be angels, streets of gold, exploring his people from every tribe, from every tongue together without sin, worshiping him, exploring his creation in the resurrection. We will be building and creating and serving one another. Other than that, it's kind of speculation. (laughs) But that is what the resurrection will be. Okay, Jesus isn't done with these guys. He, at, at this point, Jesus could say, I rest my case, but he's going to take it further. Jesus is going to give them biblical evidence for the resurrection. What is so interesting about this uh, is that this very same account is given to us in the Gospel of Mark. And what Jesus tells the Sadducees in the Gospel of Mark, and we had time, we'd go back and look at it, but we don't. Jesus tells these Sadducees when they come up with this question, he says... Jesus says, you know why you guys are wrong? Uh, Because you don't know your Bible uh, and you doubt the power of God. And then he goes on to say what he's about to say next. (laughs) Look at verse 37 together. This is the fourth point in our outline, biblical evidence for the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, right? The passage about the burning bush. Now why doesn't Jesus say Exodus chapter three? Well, we know Jesus doesn't say Exodus chapter 3 uh, because the chapter verse, the chapter divisions and verse divisions come much later. So how they found passages or how they called out passages was just referring to what was in the passage. So he says, "Hey boys, uh, remember the passage about the burning bush. This is a very important passage because Jesus, uh, or because God Himself reveals who He is. He, in the burning bush, he says, "I am." But the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, verse 38. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all Live to him. Now, Now Jesus could have quoted Isaiah 26. He could have quoted Ezekiel 37 uh, to, to show the resurrection. He could have quoted Daniel 12. He could have quoted Psalm 73, which explicitly teach the resurrection from the Old Testament. But remember, these guys only believe in the first five books, so Jesus in his grace uh, tells them a, a biblical evidence from uh, the book of Exodus. And so what Jesus is saying is that God is the God of Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, and when God revealed himself, he said, I am the God. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You understand Jesus' argument here? So, God is not the great I was. God is the great I am. He is currently, even now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they're long dead, they're still alive with him in paradise, because there is a resurrection. That is Jesus's argument here. He he is communicating to them covenant language, meaning uh, God has given a promise to his people to be their God and to never forsake them even in death. And so church family, this covenant promise then is for us. This covenant promise is for you this morning, that God promises he will not leave you, he will not forsake you even in death. And so when they close the casket, that's not not the end of the story for us because he is our covenant God. He is the great I am. Amen? Watch their response then. Then some scribes, okay, the majority of scribes, are they Pharisees or Sadducees? The majority of scribes are Pharisees. So they are really, really happy that Jesus just put the Sadducees in their place. (laughs) They like that a lot. Look at this. Then some of the scribes, who were mostly Pharisees, answered, teacher, you have spoken well. Good job, Jesus, for putting the Sadducees in their place. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. That's it. He's been preaching and teaching in the temple they have done their best. I mean, they have just laid it all out on the line to try to trip up Jesus, to try to capture him in some theological conundrum, which he cannot figure his way out of, and they failed to do it. And so they're like, anybody got anything else? No? Okay, we're done. We're done here. Jesus wins. Let's let let let's figure something else out, which they do, and we know how the story ends. At the beginning of the sermon, I said this, what you believe about death determines how you live. And we talked about secular humanists, we talked about agnostics, we talked about Hinduism, but what does that mean for us as Christians? This reality which Jesus is talking about, what does that mean then for us? How does the fact that one day Jesus will return and will give us resurrection bodies, we will be with him forever in eternity with no sin, no shame, no crying, no death, forever ruling and reigning the universe with him, what does that mean for how you treat your wife? What does that mean about your attitude at work? What does that mean about how we raise our children? How does what we believe about death impact how we live our lives? Well, I have five things. I could have 50, I have five. I have five things that I want us to look at today. Now, if you'll notice throughout the uh, exposition of the text, I didn't say write this down. Uh, I saved them all for the end. You're welcome. Here they are. One, because of the resurrection, we face suffering with a secret weapon. Because of the resurrection, we face suffering. Church family, the Bible promises The Bible promises not a life without suffering, but the Bible actually promises a life with suffering. The the Bible communicates and teaches to us that when we become a Christian, it's not as if God erases all of the suffering from our life. We will never have an issue, we'll never have a problem. It's all hunky-dory and just a bowl full of cherries until Jesus returns. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we will have suffering in this life, but we don't face suffering like other people face suffering. There's this, this common phrase that says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you. But as Christians, we say, even if it does kill me, it will make me stronger because I'll be with Christ. There's a, there's a secret weapon, don't you see? We have this secret weapon as we face suffering. We face suffering in a really, really different way. And so even if it kills me, I'll be raised to new life, meaning suffering is not the last word, meaning cancer is not the last word. The loss of a child is not how the story ends. A tragic car accident is not the end. Only, it's only temporary, don't you see? We face suffering with just a really different outlook, And so what we're facing right now is not as big as eternity. The suffering you're experiencing in your marriage is not as big as eternity. The pain that you feel from your childhood is not as big as eternity. We face suffering with a secret weapon. Second, because of the resurrection, we think about wealth as a tool not as security and status. Meaning, in the resurrection, nobody's gonna care what you drove. <laughs> in the resurrection, no one will care that you lived in a 5-4 instead of a 3-2. No one will care. No one will care that you had a beach house. No one will care about your 401k. Nobody will care. Meaning, that we now take wealth and it's not security It makes me feel safe. No, what makes me feel safe is knowing that no matter what happens to me, I'll be in the resurrection. That's what makes me feel safe, not my bank account. (laughs) And so now we're free not to be mastered by money, but now we're free to use money as a tool for the building of the kingdom because the kingdom lasts forever. Don't you see how this changes everything about how we live our, our lives day to day? Okay, because of the resurrection, we face suffering with a secret weapon. Because of the resurrection, we think about wealth as a tool and not as security and status. Third, are y'all still with me? Third, because of the resurrection, we mourn death with joy. We mourn death. So the fact of the resurrection doesn't mean we're not sad when people we love die. That's not what it means at all. We feel sadness because we miss them. But we don't mourn the way the world mourns because death isn't the end. We know that we will see them again. We know that as we enter into eternity, as our souls are united with a forever resurrection body, that those who have gone before us, that Love the Lord, they too will be there and we will see them again and we will rejoice with them in the presence of the king. And so yes, it's painful when we lose someone, when they die, it's terrible. Like we don't want them to to be gone because we love them, but we will see them again. We'll celebrate with our king together with them. And so yes, there's sorrow, but but it's mingled with joy knowing that they are in the presence of, of the king. Okay, fourthly fourth reason because of the resurrection we are not overwhelmed at the state of the world <laughs> you turn on any news outlet listen to any reporter the message is it's terrible the message is we're all going to die. The message is the planet's on fire. The message is everything is going to explode and blow up. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Hamas. If, if, we're, if we're talking about global warming, which is going to kill us all, or we're talking about nuclear war that's going to destroy the whole thing. And if you're not into any of that, we're going to be struck by an asteroid. And the, I mean, it's, it's terrible. Everybody needs to freak out. Well, that's the message of the world, isn't it? but we know there will be a resurrection to come. And so we're not freaked out by any of that. It doesn't mean that any of that, that, that stuff's not important. It just means that we're not overwhelmed. We're not freaked out by it. We, we're, we're not trying to figure out how to get out of this thing. We're just waiting on the Lord. Have, have y'all have y'all heard about this guy, Elon Musk? He, he's, he is building, he's literally building rocket ships to get us to Mars so he can save the human race, somebody needs to tell him there's going to be a resurrection. The human race doesn't need to be saved by a colony on Mars. The human race is going to enter into forever with Jesus. That's, okay, y'all don't want me to preach today. Now, fifthly, fifth, fifth, last one, last one. Can y'all hang with me for one more? Because of the resurrection, we center our lives on the building of the kingdom. We center our lives on the building of the kingdom. Because, because death is not the end, because death is not the end, it radically changes how we live our lives, and how we live our lives is based on building the kingdom. Why would we do that? Well, because the kingdom is the only thing that's going to last forever, meaning look to your left and look to your right, meaning the, the people of God, as we're joined together, This is a picture, an imperfect picture, but it is a picture of the kingdom of God. And so as the local church grows, as the gospel goes out, as people's lives are transformed by that gospel message, as we teach our children the gospel, what's happening is the kingdom is expanding. The kingdom is growing and we, we get to be a part of this. Don't, don't you understand how insane this is? God doesn't need us to build his kingdom. He could do it himself. Jesus could walk through those doors right now and just be here. And t- but he calls us to be a part of the building of his kingdom and his kingdom will last forever. And so because of the resurrection, we center our whole lives and everything that we do on the building of the kingdom. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that is going to last forever. What I love about this so much in our passage today is that Jesus, Jesus does not only verbally win this argument in this debate at that, at that time, but Jesus physically triumphs in his theological assertion because he displays the physical reality of the resurrection when he walked out of his grave. And so church family, death is not the end. Resurrection awaits. This is what Jesus has accomplished. God himself has appointed the day when the trumpet will sound, when we'll all be resurrected with him forever. The graves, the graves will be opened, but there will not be decaying flesh or dusty bones. There will be new perfected resurrection bodies, no disability, no cancer, no disease. We will be at perfect peace with God and with each other, and this will go on forever. Death is not the end. Resurrection awaits. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this conversation which has been preserved in your word between you and the Sadducees as you unfold to us the mysteries of the life to come. Lord, we, we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come. Come soon, Lord, we pray for that great day when the clouds would be rolled back as a scroll and you would descend and bring in, usher in your forever kingdom on the new heavens and the new earth. But until that great day, Lord, let us not sit and twiddle our thumbs, but let us live like that day is coming by devoting ourselves to the building of your kingdom. And so send your Holy Spirit now to empower us to see with clear eyes what this world is really about and who we will be and what we will become. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.